and I want to welcome you to our Sunday Dialogue. I am Shante Charles. I am co-founder of Life Nation, and I want to welcome you here on my behalf and also Apostle Robert Charles, who is my co-founder along with me. We have been in an incredible series as we have uh, kicked off this year, and we have been talking about liberation. We're going to continue to talk about liberation today, and I want to talk about legacy, liberation legacies. We're going to talk today about the roots of Christian suppression and Christian subjugation in the context of Black America. So if you would, go ahead and bow your head with me as we get into this message on today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love, your kindness, and your mercy. I pray that every person that would come across this message would be encouraged, that they would be educated, that they would be uplifted, that they would be empowered by not only your word, but also understanding their place in history and how history connects with what is happening even now. I thank you for this word that you've given me, for you've not given us the spirit of fear, but that of love, power, and a sound mind. And so I teach today with that in mind. Thank you for being pleased with me and pleased with this word. Amen. So last Sunday, we began to talk. Apostle Robert really began to share with us about capitalism. And I encourage you to go back and watch that video as well so that you have a little bit more um, context about what we're going to be sharing here today. But he began to talk to us about capitalism and the hold that it had and still does have on the foundation of America. Now, I want to bring us into the period before the end of enslavement and the period before the formation of what he talked about last week, which was the stock market or the stock and bond market. I want to bring you even a little bit before the formation of the country as we know it before 1776. You see, there was a period when America claimed that a great awakening was taking place. So we're going to get into this because my question is, and, and this was my question I posed to the father as I began to study this. My question was, was it a great awakening or was it putting the consciousness back to sleep? And was it a reinforcement of the dehumanization of black people? So let's talk about it. I know this is Black History Month and we often say, you know, that spiritual leaders don't really um, dig into this topic like they should, but we're going to dig into it today. So what was the Great Awakening? Now, there is more than one Great Awakening that occurred. This Great Awakening was supposed to be a religious revival that was impacting the English colonies in America, really starting into the 1700s, going really into about 1730s, 1740s, all right? 
this revival was happening for a couple of reasons. Supposedly, or allegedly, according to historical records, the passion for religion was growing stale. The passion for religious faith, mainly particularly Christian faith, had grown stale. In the 1700s, there was a European movement of enlightenment, or some would call it the age of reason or humanism that was making its way through Europe and making its way across the Atlantic. Now this was a movement that was emphasizing science and logic and man being the measure of all things. So this is important to understand when we're looking at the context of quote unquote awakenings and revival. So this revival or this awakening was being brought about by the fact that people were feeling disgruntled, disillusioned with religion and science as we know it today was really just breaking through during this time. The developments in science, the development in studying the stars and all of those things were really breaking through, I would say, in the Western world. We know prior to this, the other countries, Africa, had this knowledge already, okay? <laughs> so in the Western world, these ideas about science and logic and man being the measure of all things was really coming to the forefront. But what kind of man? You see, we often hear man is the measure of all things. But what kind of man were they talking about? They were talking about the white male. Okay? So as we look at the Great Awakening, we have to realize this is now 80 years into the slave trade. Slave trade begins around 1619, really, into the West, as we see it today. Between 1619 and 1649, there was a period called the Thirty Years' War, which was a war between religious sects. It was a war between Christians. It was a bloody war. This was a war where people were being murdered for their particular doctrine, supposedly serving and worshiping the same Christ. So even during that period of early enslavement trade, there was a religious war happening in Europe. So people wonder, well, why were these people coming to the Americas? Many were coming because they were fleeing religious persecution, get this, from each other. <laughs> That's very important to understand. So this is 80 years into the slave trade at this point. The British slave trade doesn't end until 1807. So we're looking at the period before then. At this time, there are really two factions going on. You have a faction of people that say, religion should be more formal. You have a faction that says, you know, that religion should be hierarchical, that there should be people over other people, that there should be people in power over other people. And then 
You have people that say, well, religion should be less formal. Okay. But during this time, religion is becoming more and more formal and less personal. This is why people's passion and desire for it was waning. It had become more formal. It had become less personal and it was leading to a lower church attendance during this time. Christians were disillusioned with wealth and rationalism that was dominating the culture at the time. I don't know if you can see the parallels to 2023, but Christians during this time were being disillusioned with wealth and rationalism dominating the culture. So now we have to ask ourselves the question, where was the wealth coming from? 1700s, where was this enormous burst of wealth coming from? Well, it was coming from the enslavement of human beings. The 13 colonies at this point were religiously divided. You had the New England colonies, which were sort of congregational churches. You had the middle colonies, which were being led by the Quakers, the Anglicans, the Lutheran, the Baptist, the Presbyterian, and the Dutch Reform. And then you had the Southern colonies that were mainly Anglican with some Baptists, Presbyterians, and Quakers sort of sprinkled in between. Now, because of this disillusionment that was happening, that was occurring amongst the people around the 1720s, preachers began to alter their messages. And they began to re-emphasize the doctrines of John Calvin or Calvinism. They began to put emphasis on the importance of scripture and the importance of faith. And they began to put emphasis on another doctrine called predestination. The idea that some people before eternity passed were either destined to be saved or destined to not be saved. Now, I wonder why they would have this sort of preoccupation with this doctrine. Well, could it be because they were enslaving others? They were allowing the enslavement of human beings to occur at this time. So you had to sort of justify why some people were being dehumanized and some people were not. You had to justify why some people deserved to be in perpetual servitude and some people did not. This is when we meet a young preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards and we're gonna get into him in a moment. Jonathan Edwards is most known for his famous sermon, his 1741 sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So we also have this propagation of a gospel message where God is an angry father. He's a tyrannical God, all right? Jonathan Edwards begins to propagate this message that, you know, humans are sinners and that God is angry and that he is an angry judge waiting to crush the sinner and that we need to ask for forgiveness and we're justified by faith alone. So during this time to sort of, get people back in line because church attendance is waning. 
and people are becoming disillusioned with how wealth and rationalism is dominating the culture. We now put out, or they now put out, a fear-driven message. A fear-driven message. There was another gentleman who we're going to get into by the name of George Whitefield during this time. He was touring the colonies. Um, it is said that he went up and down the coast about 5,000 miles. And you have to remember, a lot of this is being done on foot. 5,000 miles, and he preached over 350 different messages. And he would shout, and he would tremble. And he preached to everyone. He was preaching to everyone at first. He was preaching to the enslaved. He was preaching to the indigenous. And nobody was out of reach. So the themes that this Great Awakening brought about were themes like all people are born sinners. That was a doctrine that was created. Sin without salvation will send you to hell. That was a doctrine that was created. All people can be saved if they confess sin and accept grace. All people can have a direct connection with God. And religion shouldn't be formal and institutionalized, but casual and, per and personal. So these doctrines that they were bringing, some of them were in direct contradiction with the Catholic Church. All right. But this is what was happening in the Americas. Now, this is the 1730s and the 1740s. By 1742, there was a debate about whether or not people should, you know, have a casual and personal relationship with God or whether religion should be formal and institutionalized. And so by 1742, you have the, the clergy splitting up into two groups. One group was called the New Lights, who believed in this personal relationship with God and less formality in your dealings with, with religion. And then you had what they called the old lights or people who believed in sort of the Roman Catholic uh, medieval formalized way of doing religion that had a hierarchy and that had a structure to it. Now, 1790s, 1790s is the second great awakening, the second great awakening begins. Well, between 742, we know 1776, we have the Revolutionary War where America struggles for its independence, right? 1790s is the second great awakening. This great awakening is not so much about preaching as it is about establishing institutions and centers of learning. So during the second great awakening, we have the founding of colleges. We have the founding of seminaries. We have the founding of missionary societies. And this, during this second great awakening, which goes into the 1840s, during that second great awakening, we have things like Denmark V.C.'s Rebellion. We have things like Nat Turner's Rebellion in 1831 in the Second Great Awakening. Then we have a third late 
awakening, a third awakening that happens in the late 1850s through to the early 1900s, around about 19, probably going to like about 1910, 1915. So there are really three quote unquote great awakenings that happen. Now what happens that stops this third great awakening? What is happening in the early 1900s? Well, let's look at that. 1919, we have the Red Summer. Which is and which was the murder, the destruction of black towns, the lynching of black people who were up from slavery. That's what happened in 1919. So in that third, in that second great awakening, you had preachers who owned enslaved people. And you had educational institutions that were built with enslaved labor. So again, the question comes, how are you being awakened in your consciousness when you are holding people in an enslaved state? Let's talk about some of the colleges that were established during this time. Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, Dartmouth. Let's talk about the two preachers that are really synonymous with the Great Awakening era, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield. Now, I did take a look at some of the textbooks that are being used in Christian teaching and Christian universities, and both of these men are mentioned. But what I'm about to share is not mentioned in those textbooks. This is why I'm teaching on it today. All right. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves, the enslaved, throughout his life and career. He served as Princeton's third president for a little under two months because shortly after he took office, I believe he contracted smallpox and he uh, took an inoculation for it and he died. So he did not get a chance to finish out his presidential term for Princeton. Now, supposedly, he considered the enslaved his spiritual equals, but we're going to talk about what that actually meant. However, Jonathan Edwards failed to confront the moral abomination of slavery. You have to also recognize that historically during this time, ministers often purchased the enslaved to signal their elevated social status. They would often rent out the enslaved for supplemental income. And as ministers, they would often get them to do the physical and menial labor around their homes as they quote unquote devoted themselves to the study of the gospel. I know the cognitive dissonance there is, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna devote myself to the study of the gospel while I hold people, human beings, as less than human. Now, Jonathan Edwards maintained his 11 children and home life through the labor of enslaved people. He would not have been able to, um, according to his mindset, he would not have been able to afford 
the luxury of his lifestyle had he not had enslaved people. Okay? Now, he is venerated as a great revivalist, but this was his life outside of the gospel. He owned a 14-year-old Negro girl named Venus and a Negro girl, boy, excuse me, named Titus. Johnson Edwards rationalized his link to slavery as an indirect benefit from the institution. Mm -hmm. Now, what was happening with people who were hearing this gospel preached? There were people in the community that were denouncing ministers for owning slaves, for owning people for owning human beings. But Jonathan Edwards was one of those people who compromised this and tried to downplay the owning of other human beings as an indirect benefit from the institution. Now get this, he believed in spiritual, but not earthly equality of Europeans and Africans. This is why I say, we have to be very careful of the language that people use. So he considered the enslaved people his spiritual equals, but not his earthly equal. And I would venture to say there's a lot more ministers that are still holding this view. So you could be equal to him spiritually, but in the earth, you had no equality with him, which was why it was okay for him to own other human beings. Now, he got in trouble with his fellow slave-owning preachers for admitting nine Africans and the indigenous into his congregation. That is what they had took issue with. They didn't take issue with the fact that he owned human beings. They took issue with the fact that he was letting them be members of his congregation. Now, let's move on to George Whitefield. All right. At first, as we said, George Whitefield was preaching to everyone. He was preaching to the enslaved. He was preaching to the indigenous. For him, no one was out of reach of sharing the gospel with. He was going to share it wherever he went. Okay. He was at first prepared to indict slave masters for their abuses of slaves. He was getting ready to publish a letter called Letter to the Inhabitants of Maryland, Virginia, and North and South Carolina. However, as slave masters converted under his ministry, he began to compromise his message. His wealthy slave-owning friends offered to give him slaves in a South Carolina plantation also known as bribery. <laughs> now, over time, George Whitefield became convinced that he quote unquote needed slaves to work at a Georgia plantation to fund his Bethesda orphanage outside of Savannah. And I've actually been to that orphanage. Georgia, at this point, had banned slavery so because he became convinced that he needed slaves to work at a Georgia plantation and to help fund his orphanage, 
Okay. So again, he's justifying the dehumanizing of one people because he's quote unquote going to do good with the money, right? Georgia had banned slavery. And because of that, Whitefield became the colony's leading proponent to legalize slavery in Georgia because it would have benefited him directly. He became the staunchest advocate to actually expand slavery. And he was one of the most popular preachers of his time. <laughs> that would be like um, Bishop Jakes getting up and condoning the removal of African-American history in textbooks. <laughs> that would be the equivalent, okay? So Whitefield was shaped by the culture rather than choosing to shape the culture into something righteous and just. He had that authority and that power to do that. But he instead justified mass man stealing, because that's what it is, and the sale of human souls and overlooked the abuses as a whole. Now, in the second great awakening, they were talking about social reforms. This was a strong time where people were saying, we need to get rid of enslavement. This was the rise of many of the abolitionists that we hear about in history. This was the rise also of the temperance movement. There was a increase in a awareness of the need to care for the mentally ill. All of these issues were moving to the forefront. But what did they do with enslavement? They came up with a new doctrine. They said, you know, okay, we'll let you minister to the enslaved, but we'll say, we'll create a doctrine that says that their souls can be saved, but that doesn't apply to their body. Remember, they can be equal to us spiritually, but in this earthly realm and earthly frame, they are subordinate to us. They cannot be equal to us because we need to hold their bodies in enslavement because that is where the money and the profit is being made. So rather than meeting the challenge of true reform, the American church missed the moment. And I would venture to say we are yet missing the moment. So 1831, you have the second great awakening is happening during this time. But what else is happening? Denmark Vesey's revolt is happening. Nat Turner's revolt is happening. And states are passing or colonies are passing slave codes. During the so-called second great spiritual awakening, the rights of free black people are being further restricted. The rights of mulattoes are also being restricted and the rights of the enslaved were being restricted, including 
them now being tried by a different kind of court for the crimes they commit. So when we say there are two justice systems, historically, that is actually accurate. There was a court that tried the enslaved and a court that tried free blacks and mulattoes. Well, during this period, they said all of y'all are being moved to how we tried the enslaved. <clears throat> Let me read you one of the laws or codes that were enacted March 15th, 1832. This one was enacted by Virginia. It says, this is part of it. It says no slave, free Negro or mulatto, ordained, licensed or otherwise shall undertake to preach, exhort or conduct, hold any assembly or meeting for religious or other purposes, either day or night. Any offender shall be punished with stripes up to 39 lashes and anyone shall have authority without any previous written precept they shall apprehend the offender and carry him before such justice. So vigilante action in citizen terms was first invoked on preachers. Let's be clear. All right. I'm going to leave some links after I'm done teaching for you all to go and read on your own all of these laws that were passed so you can see it in, in for yourself in black and white. But right now in America, we see the restriction of reading, which was something that happened in the slave codes, a delegitimizing of black preachers, which is what happened with the slave codes, laws being passed that create two legal systems, which was happening with the slave codes. Now, all of this is happening while people claim to be awakening. <clears throat> So I want to ask the question, awakening to what? You as a black person could not be away from the premises of your master without permission. You could not assemble unless a white person was present. You could not own a firearm. You could not be taught to read or write or possess or transmit literature that encouraged any kind of revolt. So during this time, there was total control. There was whipping, branding, maiming, and torture going on. And you were under the authority of your master and whatever white preacher they brought in. If you were caught reading, sharing the gospel, holding services at night, you were going to be whipped and oftentimes there was a loss of life, not just whipping. So while people call this time the Great Awakening, and I see white people talking about we need to go back to the Great Awakening, mm -hmm. I want to ask you, what are you trying to take us back to? Mm -hmm. Because in my mind, this time should have never been called the Great Awakening. It should have been called the Great Persecution of the Enslaved and the Indigenous. That's what it should have been called. During this time, New York has the strictest codes for those of you who think this was just a Southern problem. Their codes from 1702 were expanded in 1712 and then further expanded to restrict black and free people in 1730. 
as a result of Nat Turner's rebellion, as a result of Nat Turner realizing that enslavement was evil and wrong, and he revolted against it and encouraged other people to do so, 200, at least it is recorded, at least 200 people were massacred. And there was a prohibition on education, on black movement and black assembly. I'm gonna say those three things again and ask you, what do we see in 2023? There was a prohibition on black education, black movement to and from across the country and black assembly. Why? Because black literacy was threatening the slave system. Black literacy was threatening the slave system. I'm saying it one more time. Black literacy was a threat to the system of enslavement. Third Great Awakening, 1850s to 1910s, 1919 Red Summer. 1856, during the Third Great Awakening, the slave patrol contract is born. During the Third Great Awakening, the slave patrol contract was to enforce the slave codes. All white men were assigned to patrols and charged with ensuring compliance. These contracts often included specific times that white men were charged with patrolling black bodies, often between the hours of 9 p.m. and midnight and Sundays. Some of these contracts, and again, I'm gonna leave you links after we're done. Some of these contracts had specific punishments, like 15 lashes if you were caught out during this particular time. And free black people were not allowed to talk to the enslaved other than on their own premises. Let me say that again, in case we're wondering why we have class divides in the black community. Free black people were not allowed to talk to the enslaved other than on their own premises. So let's track, I'm glad you've been listening. Let's track back from 1700s to about 1740s, we had what I'm gonna call the great deception part one. From 1790s to 1850s, we have the greater deception. From 1850s to 1910s, we have the even greater the deception. Now what is happening? Between 1863 and 1877, this would have been a part of the third great awakening happening in this country. We have reconstruction and we have peonage. 1865, the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan is born. Mm -hmm. Just think about that. 1919 is the Red Summer. This is wholesale massacres and genociding of black people and black bodies. 1920s. The Klan resurges after one of the most racist presidents we've ever had in office, Woodrow Wilson, shows the very first film in office in the White House, which happens to be Birth of a Nation. 
which is a parody saying that black men are dangerous and they're out to get your women. 1920, the Klan resurges because of this filming. During this same time, 1865, this is, this is during the Third Great Awakening or Greater Deception, 1865 through 1968, we have Jim Crow laws. 1954 to 1968, we have the Civil Rights Movement. 1966 to about 1980, which is the height of this movement, we have the Black Power Movement. 1979, we have the War on Drugs into the early 2000s. 1971, we had the Controlled Substance Act, which started the War on Drugs. So if we can be truly honest, American Christianity, American law, and American policy has all centered around these four things. Disembodiment of the black life, soul, and body. Dehumanizing of the black life, soul, and body. Delegitimizing of the black life, soul, and body. And defunding of the black life. So in the early 1900s, we see, as all of these things are happening, we began to see a formation of things from black people that began to counteract or come against or resist disembodiment, resisting dehumanization, resisting delegitimization, resisting, 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 resisting. Between 1906 and 1922, we see the formation of organizations like fraternities and sororities. In 1930, we have the formation of the National Panhellenic Council. In 1909, we see the formation of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Persons, NAACP. In the 1960s, we see the formation of Black Liberation Theology. In 1901, and really back 1897, 1901, you see the Black Pentecostal movement. The earliest movements of our own response and resistance to these systems is 1794, St. Thomas Episcopal Church is formed in Philadelphia. Then you have in the 1800s, you have the first black Protestant denomination that is resisting Richard Allen, people like him and Absalom Jones. You have the Freedmen's Bureau and you have free blacks pulling their resources together to build independent black spaces. 1906, you have Azusa Street and the revival with William J. Seymour. So I want to say, since as early as the 1500s into 2023, Black people have been revolting against our disembodiment, our dehumanization, our delegi delegitimization. We have been revolting over 500 years of striving to be free, of striving to determine our own destiny, our own worth, our own perception of God without white people's oversight, 
of telling us how to live, how to think, how to breathe, how to do, how to act, how to worship, how to praise, how to honor. And yet, we still hear the same refrain from the 1830s, from the 1930s, and now as we're moving into 2030, we still hear the same refrains. The free Negro is getting out of hand. He must be contained. He must be, or she must be restrained. They must be restricted and made to understand their place in shadowism. We've decided that they will be consumers and not creators. We decided that they will be destroyers and not builders. We've decided that they will follow us and not be leading themselves. So it is these things that we must come against and continue to come against and continue to resist in the name of the true Christ. And I wanna encourage you today because overcoming is a continuous journey, but we must not forget what the journey has been. And we must remember, and we must not fail to connect the dots because if we don't connect the dots, there'll be another generation that's disembodied, that's disempowered. There'll be another generation that's dehumanized and delegitimized. So overcoming is a continuous journey. The spirit of suppression, apostasy, hatred, oppression shows up in every generation. This is what the Holy Spirit told me to tell you today. What we do now determines if the generation coming will be fighting the same fight 50 to 100 years from now. It is not the son who has suppressed us. The tools we need are not just spiritual, but people who are willing to partner with God in human history to create a free and just society because we are not there yet. And we need not disillusion ourselves and we need not deceive ourselves into thinking that we are there yet. And if you are a white pastor listening today, you should be listening. Why? Because we see the same patterns of complacency. We see the same patterns of justifying unjust things. We see the same patterns of compromise in your midst. Compromising with political leaders. We see a false glorification of political leaders, much like the early founding fathers who also enslaved people. We see a false worship of God while ignoring the ills and the injustices being handed out. We see the spiritualization of equality of black men and black women, but we see that you don't believe in our earthly equality, which is why you remain silent many of the times when you see the injustices occurring. We see an overemphasis on nationalism and turning the cross in Christ into a militant leader versus a servant leader and a savior who conquered with love and not weapons of destruction.
Your great awakenings have been great denials and great reinforcing of less for others and all for the sake of white supremacy in America. This is ungodliness. I'm going to end today with the verse that God wanted me to emphasize, and that is Luke 18 verses 7 through 8. I'm going to grab that verse for you. Jesus said, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So my question that I leave you with as I turn this over to Apostle Robert, the black man has been pounding on the door louder and louder every century. Where will you stand when God answers the door? Thank you for your time and for your attention. Apostle. Good afternoon, everyone. We thank God for the great words of wisdom and life and power provided by our prophet Shante today. We thank God for her. This word was, <clears throat> oh my God. The great awakening, the great awakenings <clears throat> are literally as the scripture says in Corinthians Satan has his ministers who try to appear as angels of light and they set out to deceive 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 so <clears throat> liberation legacy one of the most powerful things we need to understand when we look at liberation is that number one, number one, number one, westernized religion or westernized religious movements cannot ever be trusted as face value for bringing the freedom and the love of God to all people. They cannot be trusted. You look at the great leaders of these great awakenings, so to speak, as she, as Prophet Shante so eloquently uh, disclosed to us. The Reverend Jonathan Edwards who was a president at, at Princeton. You had, you know, the Reverend George Woodfield, who was against slavery, and the slave owners came together and decided to bribe him to say that we do need slaves. And matter of fact, you need to build, you know, let me build an orphanage and use slaves for it. So they use their cultural and economic power to suppress human beings through 
the cover of God and religious and Christian faith for their own economic empowerment and betterment in society. This is what you call false apostles, false teachers, false prophets. So now that we have these great awakenings, even in the recent times of our current history and our current generation, we have seen how the most narcissistic ethically polarizing individuals have come into the head offices of the nation. And now that they're even out of those head offices of the nation, we have subheads around the nation taking on the same mindset using westernized religion exclusively with Caucasians who were the founders of destruction of human life in the Western world through shadow slavery. That spirit, as Prophet Shante says, really towards the end of our discussion, is there to disembody, to dehumanize, to delegitimize, and to defund everything that, that entails with the honoring of God's very image on earth. As she said, the spirit of apostasy and oppression, it comes up through every generation. It comes up and shows its head pretty much through every generation. And the reason why it does that is people take on the foundational tenets of slave mastery through religion and put religious uh, identity as a cover, as going after God, going after the holy, which really was only this empowerment of their supremacy over others. That's not what God is about. Christ said, who the Son sets free is free indeed. No awakening, no religious movement, no leader, no spiritual leader, no anybody can do anything regarding the kingdom of God that includes the, de the disembodiment, the humanizing, the legitimization, and defunding of a human group. Down in Florida, we see that they're making felony out of having resources and books of historians, of personal stories and the tra overcoming tragedies that deal with being oppressed as human beings in this particular nation in the Western world. You have all of this happening as a basis, as a cover of religious freedom. When literally it is, is religious blindness. God does not make us blind to the ills of the world. The very purpose that God even raised up Abraham, that God even raised up Moses, that God even raised up David, and even all of the biblical patriarchs and leaders and hall of faith 
makers of our ancestors was about being freed from from systems that oppress. You look at the work of many of these leaders here. Martin Luther King. Ida B. Wells, James Cone, Richard Allen, Jarena Lee, Lee, William Seymour, Seymour, and C.H. Mason, one of the great ones that we've studied so much about. They spoke on the very ills of, of society and how God gives us strength to overcome the ills of Western supremacy over human beings. There's so much to say. Let me show you one more image here. Even the birthing of the historical black college university at the NAACP and various groups that support the work of freedom of those who are formerly enslaved and their descendants. And that is becoming against, that is becoming now a felony to even share the stories. Mm -hmm. There's something God put in my spirit to do yesterday and this, uh, excuse me, Um, here we go. I'll back up with this and share this here. If you could screenshot that. In 1963, the the elected leader of Alabama, the state leader, defied federal government and stood at the doors of a college, University of Alabama, I believe, to make sure that he would stand in the gap to ensure that black humans would not enter that school and had his own personal army to protect that whole purpose. This was against federal law. The very same thing is happening in Florida now. Mm -hmm. Times 100. Where they are taking and barricading equality in education disembodying, dehumanizing, delegitimizing, and defunding the work of historians that speak the truth about oppression and being freed from oppression and the measures and steps that had to be taken to do that. So we have to understand. Study to show yourself approved as a workman unto God Rightly dividing the word of truth. It's not about politics. It's not about culture. It's not about economics, but it's about truth. Christ is about truth. And the truth is that mainstream religion, as we see, they are emboldening themselves upon the ancestral mountains of oppression to disguise their hatred 
for those who are not Caucasian. And using God as a cover and Christ as a cover. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He will not allow these things just as it was in the days of Moses. People's hearts can get hardened. Leaders can get hardened all they want. But when the spirit of the Lord raises his standard, which he is and who he raised it through. These false doctrines, these false apostles, these false movements of faith. That just only engender supremacy will be toppled and crumbled just as Dagon was crumbled in the days of Samson. So God bless you. And we thank you for your time and attention today. If you would like to partner with us, email us at lifenationkc at gmail.com. Again, we appreciate you sharing in this word and this message today with us. We pray that God's favor and grace be upon you as you enter into this week. And to remember, you have a great legacy of liberation. Don't let anybody dehumanize you and delegitimize your walk and your faith in the Christ. God bless.